This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Britain had been too complacent for too long after rebuilding from the Second World War. Countries like France and Germany hadn't just caught up in terms of economics and manufacturing, they were starting to leave Britain behind. In 1970, Edward Heath, a builder's son, became Prime Minister and promised a quiet revolution that he claimed would turn around the fortunes of the country. However, Heath's plans were scuppered by a national energy crisis, a financial crash, and strikes leading to the three-day week. Labour's Harold Wilson replaced him as PM in 1974, and despite strong social policies, inflation hit 30%, unemployment figures surpassed the 1 million mark, and the government accepted an embarrassing bailout from the International Monetary Fund. In the music world, prog rock was in the ascension with bands like Queen, Pink Floyd, Yes, Mike Oldfield and Jethro Tull all having great success in the album charts with their expressive utopian themes and complex musical arrangements. The singles charts were bland in comparison with number ones coming from such acts as ABBA, various members of the Osmond family, Gary Glitter, Slade, Mud, David Cassidy, Gilbert O'Sullivan, Rod Stewart, Chicory Tip and Benny Hill. Cinema was more representative of the times, with films like The Godfather, Westworld, A Clockwork Orange, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Taxi Driver, The Towering Inferno, The Exorcist, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Deliverance, Dirty Harry and Sarlo, or the 120 Days of Sodom, all showing a growing nihilism and violence. Was it any wonder then that people felt disenfranchised and the youth of the time began to feel increasingly frustrated and nihilistic? (laughs) 
Out of this bubbling undercurrent of tension exploded a band that epitomised the national feeling. The Sex Pistols single-handedly invented the punk genre both in terms of sound and look, and in just a few short years, and just one album, shook the foundations of the establishment and inspired countless young people who felt like they didn't belong to form bands and make their voices heard. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Band Biographies is proud to present the story of the Sex Pistols. The year was 1972 and teenagers Steve Jones and Paul Cook were bunking off school together when they vowed to start a band with another schoolmate, Wally Nightingale. Steve Jones lived with his young mother and her parents after his father, Don Jarvis, an amateur boxer, left when Jones was just two years old. Growing up, Jones spent a year in a remand centre after racking up a string of criminal convictions. It was this criminal activity that afforded the band, known as The Strand, their instruments and equipment. The band was named after the Roxy Music song, Do The Strand. Jones, Cook and Nightingale attended many gigs and either followed the vans of the bands they'd just seen, wait for a few hours after they were parked up, then break in and steal the equipment, or simply steal as much as they could carry away from the venues after the bands had left the stage. The Strand rehearsed in Nightingale's parents' house. Jones was the singer, Nightingale played guitar and Cook played drums. And there was a revolving roster of bassists and other musicians. By 1974, The Strand was starting to get more serious and now had its own rehearsal space. Jones and Cook had also started hanging out in clothing shops on Kings Road in Chelsea, including Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, run by Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. The shop sold classic rocker gear inspired by the look of Marlon Brando in The Wild One. It was here they met Glenn Matlock, who worked there as a part-time shop assistant and convinced him to play bass for their band, which by now had been renamed The Swankers. It was around this time that McLaren, who had recently managed the New York Dolls, began to advise the group on their aspirations, style and look. He became The Swankers' manager in 1975 and suggested to Jones and Cook that they would have a better chance at success without Nightingale. This was music to the ears of Jones, who for some time had been uncomfortable in the frontman role and had secretly begun to learn the guitar without Nightingale's knowledge. One day in the summer of 1975, Nightingale walked into the band's brand new rehearsal space, now being funded by McLaren, to find Jones wielding a guitar. Nightingale was speechless, his eyes filled with tears. Nothing more needed to be said. He had been ousted from his own band. The band that eventually became the Sex Pistols only had two original songs, Scarface and Do No Wrong, which were largely written by Nightingale but never released. 
Years later, in an interview with Rock Compact Disc magazine in 1993, Nightingale said, I never got paid a penny for it. Ever since, I've been trying to prove I wrote the song music. I've got statements from Dave Goodman, who produced our first demo, and Nick Kent, the journalist, to that effect. But I've had no joy because Steve and Paul deny it. It's very frustrating. The lyrics to Do No Wrong were rewritten, though the musical arrangement remained the same. The song was released as the B-side to God Save the Queen, and later included on the Flogging a Dead Horse compilation album, and was regularly performed live by the band on its reunion tours in the 90s and 2000s. In the same interview, Nightingale said he attended the Sex Pistols' first gig at the 100 Club six months after he was kicked out of the band, and Jones and Cook refused to talk to him. He said, In hindsight, I'm proud to have been involved in the punk scene, though I don't go around telling everyone of it. After I left the band, Steve and the others slagged me off in the music press really badly. I never really knew why. I never did them any harm. He added that McLaren was devious and clever. He'd see things which other people didn't see, and I suppose that's what gave him his edge. Nightingale continued to pursue a career in pop music and in 1981 founded a band called Key West. But the big break never fully materialised. In the same year, he fell into a drug habit after his father died in suspicious circumstances after being sacked from his job for embezzlement, which led to a six-month jail sentence. Nightingale remained at his family home with his mother, the same house where the Strand did all their early practising, until he died at the age of 40 years old on the 6th of May 1996 from a medical condition associated with narcotics use. John Joseph Lydon was born on the 31st of January 1956 to parents Eileen and John Christopher Lydon, working-class Irish emigrants who lived in a small two-room Victorian flat in Holloway, North London. He was the eldest of four brothers whom he regularly had to look after growing up because of his mother's regular illnesses and his father working away on building sites and oil rigs. The young Lydon was a shy, retiring child who would regularly be bullied at school, far from the persona he took on during his years in the Sex Pistols. He was also picked on for having an English accent while on family holidays to his parents' native Cork. At the age of seven, he was struck down with spinal meningitis, during which he suffered hallucinations, headaches, periods of coma and memory loss that lasted for four years. The treatment for spinal meningitis at the time involved removing fluid from the spine with a needle, leaving Lydon with a permanent curve in his spine. It also left him with his trademark stare. Lydon later said this experience was the first step that put him on the path to becoming Johnny Rotten. By the age of 15, Lydon began to fight back against school bullies and teachers and it was around this time that he cut the long hair that his father hated so much into a shorter style, but in an act of rebellion he dyed it bright green. Lydon had started hanging out on King's Road at the age of 19 and was encouraged into the sex boutique, as McLaren had renamed his shop, to try out as frontman to the equally remonikered QT and the Sex Pistols. McLaren was taken with Lydon's scruffy look, dressed as he was in a torn pink Floyd t-shirt, held together with safety pins and the words I hate scribbled over the top of the band's logo and the band's eyes scratched out, as well as his short, scruffy, bright green hair. 
Cook would later say that he came in with green hair, I thought he had a really interesting face, and I liked his look. John had something special, but when he started talking he was a real arsehole, but smart. They had Lydon sing along to Alice Cooper's I'm 18. His performance reduced the onlookers to tears of laughter, but despite this, McLaren and the other Pistols saw something in him and dubbed him Johnny Rotten on account of the state of his teeth. The band then started performing together as a unit under the shortened name Sex Pistols. The new band had its root in mod music through a distorted filter of the New York Dolls and the Stooges. They were angrier and louder than anything most had experienced and they were just about to unleash this fury at their first gig. On the evening of the 6th of November 1975, Matlock had arranged for the Sex Pistols to support pub rock band Bazooka Joe at a gig in the common room in the central St Martin's College of Art and Design, where Matlock had been studying until the band started to get serious. The Pistols were to play a 20-minute set before Bazooka Joe, using the more experienced band's equipment as they claimed their equipment was stuck miles away in a broken-down band. John Robb's book, Punk Rock, The Oral History, gives a first-hand account of the gig from various people who were there to witness the birth of punk in all its sloppy, loud raucousness. Paul Madden, a photographer and student at the college, said, They had an attitude that was basically, fuck off, we're the Sex Pistols. They were all going in the same direction at maximum speed. I didn't think they were that outrageous. I like them, though. The Sex Pistols were not proficient players at the time, it was their first gig, but they had a confidence in what they were doing, a cheeky chappy confidence. Pat Collier, who later played in the Vibrators and became a music producer, had a less emphatic view of them. It didn't seem like a momentous occasion at the time. As I came in, I remember them doing a cover of the Small Faces All or Nothing. From their choice of material, they seemed like an average band, but I wasn't really watching. A few months later, I saw them and they were unbelievably brilliant, perhaps the best band I've ever seen. The Sex Pistols ripped through a number of covers before attempting to play some of their original tunes, Did You Know Wrong and Problems, but never got the chance. The noise was too much for Bazooka Joe and the gig's organisers, who decided that enough was enough, let alone that the Pistols had overrun their 20-minute time slot. Cook then took a pot shot at Bazooka Joe, slurring through a haze of cheap vodka, now for the real thing. This prompted Bazooka Joe's singer, John Ellis, to jump over the drum kit and start a rather pathetic-looking playground-style fight with Cook, all flailing arms and missed punches. Bazooka Joe's guitarist, Robin Chapka, summed up the scene, saying, The Pistols were a bunch of chances, really. Nothing made them stand out. No one had an inkling of what was going to happen. Later on, I bumped into Glenn Matlock, and he said, Sorry, mate, he was the calmest out of the whole lot. I said, you can't borrow gear and trash it and scare everyone away. I then found out through a few mates that they never had a van with gear in it at all. They'd pulled a fast one and gate crashed the gig. I thought, cheeky bastards. What a brilliant con. John Lydon added that there was not one single hand clap. The college audience had never seen anything like it. They couldn't connect with where we were coming from because our stance was so anti-pop 
so anti-everything that had gone before. Not long after this run-in with the Sex Pistols, Bazooka Joe broke up, with guitarist Ellis founding the Vibrators and bassist Stuart Goddard adopting the moniker Adam Ant and setting up Adam and the Ants. These were just two of the countless number of bands the Sex Pistols would go on to directly inspire. In the preceding months, the Sex Pistols began to build a solid following after playing at Ravensbourne College in Bromley on the 9th of December 1975, supporting a band called Fog. In the audience that night was Simon Baker, who loved the band so much that he wouldn't stop talking about them to his friend Stephen Bailey, who went on to become Stephen Severin, the bassist in Susie and the Banshees. Together with some other friends of theirs, including Pamela Rook, better known as the punk model Jordan, Sue Lucas, also known as Sue Catwoman, thanks to her shaved hairstyle that made her look like she had cat ears, Susan Ballion, who was about to become Susie Sue and form the Banshees with Severin, and William Broad, who would go on to form Generation X, as well as having a successful solo career during the 1980s and 90s as Billy Idol. This group were known as the Bromley Contingent, a term coined by melody maker journalist Caroline Coon. Their fashion sense and the girls' use of makeup soon became a trend among the punk movement. Their slashed t-shirts held together by safety pins, tartan trousers, combat boots, spiky hairstyles, bondage and fetish clothing and thick eyeliner and lipstick are all ubiquitous in the stereotypical image that's conjured up in the mind whenever someone says the word punk. Another spoke was added to the wheel of punk iconography in 1976 in the shape of artist Jamie Reed. An old friend of McLaren's, Reed was inspired by the revolutionary situationist art movement and at McLaren's request started producing publicity material for the Sex Pistols. Flyers, posters and the like with wording in the style of a ransom note. He would also go on to design the garish yellow and pink album cover for Nevermind the Bollocks' Here's the Sex Pistols, the covers for the singles Anarchy in the UK, Pretty Vacant and Holidays in the Sun, and arguably the most controversial piece of album art in music history, the cover to God Save the Queen, which featured a portrait of Queen Elizabeth II with a safety pin through her nose and swastikas over her eyes. The 12th of February 1976 saw the band played what was to be their breakthrough gig, supporting the established pub rock band Eddie and the Hot Rods at the Marquee Club on Oxford Street. The Marquee had a legendary status in the music world, with many bands starting their careers there, including the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, Led Zeppelin, The Who, King Crimson, The Sin, Yes, Jethro Tull, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Pink Floyd, David Bowie, who appeared in the band The Manish Boys, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, Status Quo, The Boys, Eddie and the Hot Rods and The Stranglers all performing before the Pistols graced the stage. The Marquee would later go on to host the punk and new wave bands Generation X, London, The Police, XTC, Screwdriver, The Sinceros, Buzzcocks, Adam and the Ants, The Jam, Joy Division, The Sound, The Cure, Dire Straits, Alexis Corner, Stephen Hillage, Rory Gallagher, Racing Cars, The Enid, The Tyler Gang, Universe and Crackeron in the 1970s. In the 80s, the Marquee also became an important venue for the new wave of British heavy metal bands. Angel Witch, Diamond Head, Witchfinder, Praying Mantis and Iron Maiden performed there as well as the first ever gig by Def Leppard. The glam revivalists Hanoi Rocks, The Babysitters and The Choir Boys were all regulars in the early to mid 80s and it even played host to the first UK show by Metallica. 
The Marquee was also the central venue of the progressive rock revival of the early 80s. It was here that the then unsigned Marillion began to gain a wider fan base and press interest by playing frequent two-night residences to sold-out crowds. But on that February evening in 1976, Johnny Rotten put on a show for the crowd. He walked off stage, sat with the audience, threw Jordan across the dance floor and chucked chairs around, and ended the night by smashing up some of Eddie and the Hot Rod's gear. The band's first review in the press appeared in the NME, featuring a brief interview in which Steve Jones declared, actually we're not into music, we're into chaos. Among those who read the article were two students at the Bolton Institute of Technology, Howard DeVoto and Pete Shelley, who headed down to London in search of the Sex Pistols. After chatting with McLaren at Sex, they saw the band at a couple of gigs that February. The two friends immediately began organising their own Pistols-style group, the Buzzcocks. Later, Devoto stated, My life changed the moment I saw the Sex Pistols. From here on out, the Pistols began playing other important venues in London, including the 100 Club and the Nashville, where, on the 3rd of April, they supported another established pub rock group called the 101ers. Their lead singer, Joe Strummer, witnessed the Sex Pistols for the first time that night and saw that the future was in punk. Of course, Strummer would go on to front many bands before his untimely passing in 2002, but the most well-known of them all was The Clash, which was formed very soon after this gig and played its first show on the 4th of July 1976 at the Black Swan in Sheffield, where they opened for the Sex Pistols. At the end of April, a fight broke out at the Pistols' second gig at the Nashville and saw them banned from both the Nashville and the Marquee. The same day, April 23rd, saw the release of an album by the Ramones, a New York-based band who it is frequently argued may have been an influence on the Pistols, a claim that Rotten has always refuted, stating in his autobiography, The Ramones were all long-haired and of no interest to me. I didn't like their image, what they stood for, or anything about them. In May, the band focused on touring towns outside of London and recording demos. The fire was slowly growing. June saw the band's first gig in Manchester, supported by The Damned and The Clash. The gig had been arranged by Devoto and Shelley at the Lesser Free Trade Hall, which sparked a punk rock boom in the city. Among the 40 or so audience members in attendance that night, Bernard Sumner, Ian Curtis and Peter Hook went on to form Joy Division and New Order, Mark E. Smith later formed The Fall, and Stephen Morrissey became frontman of The Smiths as well as crafting a successful and controversial solo career. Also during June, the Ramones played a show at Dingwalls in Camden, which, despite their protestations, all the members of the Sex Pistols attended, as well as pretty much anyone who was anyone in the London punk scene. The Pistols returned to Manchester in July and played an open-air concert in London with the Buzzcocks and The Clash, organised by McLaren in August. They also played their first overseas show at the opening of the Chalet du Lac Disco in Paris, and on the 3rd of September embarked on a UK tour and headlined the 100 Club Punk Special. According to music press reviews at the time and testimonials by fellow musicians, the Pistols had developed into a tight, ferocious live band, with Rotten testing out wild vocalisation styles and the instrumentalists experimenting with overload feedback and distortion, pushing their equipment to the limit. 
In amongst this, the band appeared on TV for the first time on the 3rd of September, on a programme called So It Goes, presented by Tony Wilson, who had seen them at their second Manchester gig in July. Wilson went on to set up Factory Records and the Hacienda Nightclub, which would jointly go on to birth the Manchester scene in the 80s and 90s. Appearing alongside Dr. Hook, Peter Cook and Clive James, the Sex Pistols caused controversy on the TV programme, and not for the last time. They were supposed to play their latest song, Anarchy in the UK. However, clearly wanting to take advantage of their first televised appearance, Rotten shouted, Get up, as the song began, and the Pistols caused further chaos by blasting through two more songs. Journalist Charles Shah Murray described it as the most utterly immediate thing I've ever seen on TV. It wasn't long before the band came to the attention of record companies. The ever-ambitious Sex Pistols, together with McLaren's entrepreneurial skills, had no intention of signing to a small label. They wanted the biggest and the best. On the 8th of October 1976, the Sex Pistols were signed to EMI for £40,000 on a two-year contract, and Chris Thomas was brought in to produce the band's first single, Anarchy in the UK. Though not the first punk single, being beaten by the Damned's New Rose and the Vibrators' We Vibrate, Anarchy in the UK was a different beast altogether. It was a politically aware, angry weapon of a song, with Rotten spitting out the opening line. Referencing political movements like the UDA, IRA, MPLA, and finishing with the venomous line, Get Pissed, Destroy, over the wall of sound created by Steve Jones's equally aggressive descending chord progression, backed up by the pummeling rhythm section of Cook and Matlock. The lyrics are a reflection of the youth of Britain in the mid-1970s, angry, confused, restless, frustrated and alienated. McLaren said the song was a call to arms to the kids who believed that rock and roll was taken away from them. It's a statement of self-rule, of ultimate independence. Anarchy in the UK was officially released on the 26th of October 1976 and reached number 38 in the UK singles chart. By the end of the year, the Sex Pistols would become a household name and banned from playing in the UK after their second and most controversial television appearance, live on Thames Television's Today programme, hosted by Bill Grundy. Along with members of the Bromley contingent, the band, appearing as a last-minute replacement for Queen, proceeded to fling swear words at Grundy after he appeared to proposition Susie Sue after she told him she'd always wanted to meet him. Here's how that played out. They are punk rockers. The new craze, they tell me. They're heroes, not the nice, clean Rolling Stones. You see, they're as drunk as I am. They are clean by comparison. They're a group called the Sex Pistols. And I'm surrounded now by all of them. Just let us see the Sex Pistols in action. Come on, I am told that that group have received £40,000 from a record company doesn't that seem uh, to be slightly opposed to their anti-materialistic view of life? Uh, or... More to marry Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me more, then. You fucking spent it, haven't we? I don't know, have you? Yeah, yeah. it's all gone. Really? Down the Won't it? Really? Good Lord. Now, I want to know one thing. <laughs> what? Are you serious? Or are you just making it, no, trying to make gone. me laugh? Go on. Really? Yeah. No, but I mean about what you're doing. Oh, yeah. 
You are serious? Mm. Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, and Brahms have all died. Really? What are we saying, sir? Wonderful people. Are they? Oh, yes, they really turn us on. But they do. Well, suppose they turn other people on. That's just their touch, isn't it? It's what? Nothing, a rude word. Next question. No, no. What was the rude word? Shit. Was it really? Good heavens, you frightened me to death. Oh, all right. See, what about you girls down. behind? Are you, uh, <laughs> are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought you were doing. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. We'll meet afterwards, shall we? <laughs> you dirty yeah. son. Yeah. You dirty <laughs> old man. Well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. <laughs> Go on, you've got another five you seconds. Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. Go on, again. <laughs> you dirty fucker. What a clever boy. What a yeah. fucking rotter. Well, that's it for tonight. The other rocker, Abel, and I'm saying nothing else about him, will be back tomorrow. I'll be seeing you soon. I hope I'm not seeing you again. From me, though, good night. Although Thames Television only went out in the London region, the tabloids covered the incident for days with headlines like four-letter words, Rock TV, and the much more snappy The Filth and the Fury. Grundy, who was allegedly drunk during the interview, was suspended and, though he was later reinstated, his career never recovered. The Sex Pistols began a UK tour of 20 dates supported by The Clash, The Damned and the New York band The Heartbreakers. However, McLaren kicked The Damned off the tour early on. Because of the intense media scrutiny following the Grundy interview, as well as campaigns by the Welsh press and a crowd fronted by a Pentecostal preacher outside a show in Caerphilly, the majority of the dates were cancelled. As well as this, Packers at EMI refused to handle copies of Anarchy in the UK. Bernard Brook Partridge, a Conservative member of the Greater London Council and chairman of the Arts Committee from 1977, declared, Most of these groups would be vastly improved by sudden death. The worst of the punk rock groups I suppose currently are the Sex Pistols. They are unbelievably nauseating. They are the antithesis of humankind. I would like to see somebody dig a very, very large, exceedingly deep hole and drop the whole bloody lot down. On the dissolution of the tour in December, the band was booked to play a number of dates in Holland in January of 1977. It was reported by the evening news that the band vomited and spat their way onto the plane. Despite denials from an EMI representative accompanying the group, the label released the band from their contract amidst mounting political pressure. McLaren instantly went to work fielding offers from other labels and booked the band in to record some of their other songs. These would be the last recordings to feature Matlock on bass. On the 28th of February 1977, McLaren sent a telegram to the NME announcing Matlock's departure. In it, he explained that the bassist had been thrown out of the band because he liked the Beatles. Jones later echoed this and added that he was a good writer, but he didn't look like a sex pistol and he was always washing his feet. He also added his mum didn't like the songs. Matlock told the enemy that he left the band by mutual agreement. A bitter dispute has lasted for decades about the reason for Matlock's firing and his involvement in the writing and recording of songs for Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Matlock has claimed that he co-wrote 10 of the 12 tracks on the album, with the other two being written after his departure. While Cook tends to agree with Matlock's versions of events, Jones has stated as recently as 2011 that he wrote just as many tracks for the album as Matlock. In Rotten's autobiography, the singer claims that Matlock worked on the album as a session musician, 
though Matlock states that the songs were all recorded before he left. Matlock also claims that the Beatles allegation is a lie, saying his primary influence was actually the Faces. In his autobiography, Matlock explains that he left the band of his own volition as he was sick of all the bullshit, including Rotten's inflated ego. The band members all admit there were tensions between Matlock and Rotten, which Matlock says were exacerbated by McLaren pitting the two men against each other. Rotten would later claim that God Save the Queen, planned as the band's next single, had been the final straw. Matlock couldn't handle those kinds of lyrics. He said it declared us fascists. Though the singer couldn't see how anti-royalism equated with fascism, he claimed, just to get rid of him, I didn't deny it. Anne MacDonald wasn't a success at school. At a young age, she dropped out and joined the RAF, where not long after, she met John Ritchie, a guardsman at Buckingham Palace and semi-professional trombone player on the London jazz scene. Shortly after their marriage, John Simon Ritchie was born on the 10th of May 1957 in Lewisham, whereupon Anne and baby John moved to Ibiza, where they expected to be joined by his father. In the meantime, it was arranged that John would look after his young family financially. However, after the first few cheques failed to arrive, it was clear that he wasn't coming, and Anne and John moved back to the UK. In 1965, Anne married Christopher Beverley. Eight-year-old John became John Beverley, and the new family unit took up residence in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. More tragedy would strike just six months later when Chris died from cancer. In 1971, Anne and John, who had reverted back to Ritchie, moved to Hackney, East London, where, at Hackney Technical College, he met John Lydon. By the age of 17, Ritchie was living in a squat with Lydon, John Gray and John Joseph Wardle, who went on to take the moniker Jar Wobble and play bass in Lydon's post-pistols band Public Image Limited. Together they were known as the Four Johns. During this time, Lydon's pet hamster, Sid, named after Pink Floyd's Sid Barrett, a name Ritchie hated, bit Ritchie, who responded by saying, Your Sid is vicious, prompting Lydon to christen Ritchie with a new nickname, Sid Vicious. Lydon and Vicious would busk to scrape together some money, playing Alice Cooper songs until people paid them to stop. Vicious also hung out at the sex boutique, where he met a young Chrissy Hind, later lead singer of The Pretenders, who, despite being five years his senior, tried and failed to convince Vicious to enter into a sham marriage with her so she could gain a work permit. He founded a band called The Flowers of Romance. Lydon claims he came up with the name. They never played live or released any recordings and, much like other early punk bands such as London SS and Masters of the Backside, were more well known for the amount of members that went on to become members of more prolific bands. Among these were Keith Levine, who was a founding member of The Clash and Public Image Limited, and both Palm Olive and Viv Albertine would later join The Slits. The highly controversial song Belson Was a Gas, about the Nazi concentration camp Bergen-Belsen, which was liberated by British troops in 1945, originates from this band, and was later performed live by The Sex Pistols, Public Image Limited, as well as Sid Vicious's solo act. Lydon also used the band's name as the title of his 1981 Public Image Limited album as well as its title track. Vicious also played drums for Susie and the Banshees at their first gig at the 100 Club, and the Dan claimed that they considered him for their singer, but he didn't turn up to the audition, leaving the door open for Dave Vanian. 
Vicious later contested that Vanian and his friends had intentionally withheld information as an act of jealousy to ensure Vicious did not make it to the audition. Vicious, an ironic nickname for someone who was usually so childlike, also had a dark side which manifested itself in a number of ways throughout his life, but especially around this time where he and Jar Wobble assaulted NME journalist Nick Kent with a motorbike chain. In another occasion at the Speakeasy nightclub, he threatened BBC DJ and old grey whistle test presenter Bob Harris. On the back of the perceived snub from The Damned, he was performing with Susie and the Banshees on the second day of the 100 Club Punk special, which the Sex Pistols were headlining and The Damned were also playing. During The Damned's set, an amphetamine fueled Vicious threw a glass at Vanian, but his aim was off and the glass missed its intended target, shattering into a thousand pieces and partially blinding a female giggoer in one eye. Vicious was subsequently arrested and imprisoned at Ashford Remand Centre. While he was in prison, Vivian Westwood sent him a book about Charles Manson to keep him occupied. Despite not being able to play bass, Vicious was asked to replace Matlock, mainly due to him being present at every Sex Pistols gig. Westwood has said that Vicious was actually the John that she originally told McLaren should be the singer of the Sex Pistols rather than Rotten, and McLaren eventually conceded that if he'd met Vicious before Rotten, he'd have chosen him to front the band as he said that even though Rotten was the voice of punk, Vicious was the attitude, he had the most charisma of anyone on that stage. As well as having the look and the attitude, Vicious is also credited with inventing the pogo dance that caught on at early punk gigs, though there are rumours that rather than inventing a new aggressive form of dance to bump into people he didn't particularly like, he was simply trying to see the bands over the heads of the people in front of him. Rotten described the first few rehearsals in March 1977 with Sid as hellish, but Vicious tried hard and rehearsed a lot, sometimes all day and night. Despite his lack of musical talent, Vicious's first gig with the band occurred on the 3rd of April 1977, and from here on out the Sex Pistols legend became intertwined with the on and off stage behaviour of Vicious, who had, by this point, met and fallen into a torturous relationship with Nancy Spungen. Nancy Laura Spungen was the daughter of middle-class parents Franklin and Deborah Spungen on the 27th of February 1958. Her entry into the world was complicated. She was strangled by her umbilical cord, causing her skin to turn a blue-purple colour, a condition called cyanosis, brought on by oxygen starvation. However, she was found to have suffered no brain damage as a result of this asphyxiation and was allowed to leave the hospital. The young Nancy was a difficult child who would constantly throw crying fits and tantrums and at three months old she was prescribed a liquid barbiturate by a paediatrician, but her fits continued into her late childhood. Despite this, she was allowed to skip third grade when she scored superior on an IQ test at age five. Although she was ahead in school and possibly because of being moved up, she had very few friends. Growing up, she was incredibly violent towards her younger sister Susan, but cared very much for her younger brother David. However, her violent side was much more evident than her caring side. She was accused of threatening to kill a babysitter with scissors and attempted to batter her psychiatrist who had just accused her of acting out for attention. Nancy was expelled from school at the age of 11 after failing to attend for two weeks in a row, and she ran away from her next school, attempting to commit suicide by slitting her wrists with scissors. At 15, Nancy was diagnosed with schizophrenia. 
Despite all of this, Spungen graduated from high school in 1974 and won a place at the University of Colorado. But within five months of her freshman year, she was arrested for buying marijuana from an undercover police officer and was later expelled for storing stolen property in her dorm room, which led to her being banished from the state of Colorado. For the next two years, she survived through stealing money from her family and dealing drugs, eventually ending up in New York City, where she worked as a stripper and a prostitute and began following bands like Aerosmith, Bad Company, the New York Dolls and the Ramones. In a possible move to win the heart of Jerry Nolan, the drummer of the New York Dolls and Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, the latter of which had been asked to support the Pistols on tour in 1976, Spungen moved to London, and this is where she discovered the Sex Pistols. Rotten paid her absolutely no interest at all, which prompted her to pursue Vicious, and the couple quickly moved in together, embarking on a codependent relationship that featured intense drug and domestic abuse. Both were drug abusers by this stage in their lives, but it was Nancy that is said to have introduced Sid to heroin. It was around his first gigs with the Sex Pistols and meeting Nancy that a change in Vicious began to rear its head. Susie and the Banshees guitarist Marco Pironi is on record as saying, after that it was nothing to do with music anymore, it would just be for the sensationalism and the scandal of it all. Lydon added later that up to that time Sid was absolutely childlike, everything was fun and giggly, suddenly he was a big pop star. Pop star status meant press, a good chance to be spotted in the right places, adoration. That's what it all meant to Sid. About Nancy, Lydon said that he regretted ever introducing her to Sid. We did everything to get rid of Nancy. She was killing him. I was absolutely convinced this girl was on a slow suicide mission. Only she didn't want to go alone. She wanted to take Sid with her. She was so utterly fucked up and evil. On the 10th of March 1977, an intoxicated sex pistol signed to A&M Records at a press ceremony held outside Buckingham Palace although the official signing had taken place the day before. When the band got back to A&M's offices, Vicious smashed a toilet bowl with his foot, cutting it open and trailing blood around, while Rotten verbally abused the staff and Jones got frisky with one of the receptionists in the ladies' room. A few days later, the Pistols got into an altercation with another band at a club, and one of Rotten's friends threatened the life of someone known to a member of A&M. This led the record company to break the contract with the band on the 16th of March, less than a week after signing them. 25,000 copies of God Save the Queen were subsequently destroyed by A&M. In May, the band signed to Richard Branson's Virgin Records, which up to this point had been home to prog rock acts like Mike Oldfield, Faust and Gong, as well as electronic and kraut rock acts like Tangerine Dream. The signing of the Pistols marked the start of the label's transition into punk and new wave, and the company went on to sign acts like The Ruts, Skids, The Motors, Simple Minds, Ecstasy, Culture Club and Human League, whose Don't You Want Me would score the label's first number one in 1981. It also changed its logo to the now ubiquitous white and red scrawl, though the first use of this logo was on Mike Oldfield's 1978 album Incantations. The Sex Pistols' third label in six months was more than happy to put out God Save the Queen as a single. However, workers at the pressing plant refused to press it in protest against the song's content and Jamie Reid's cover design. 
After lengthy discussions, the single was finally released on the 27th of May 1977, coinciding with the Queen's Silver Jubilee celebrations. This was not the last obstacle to the single's success though, as several major shops and record stores refused to stock it due to its lyrics that were seen to border on the treasonous, and comparing the monarchy to a fascist regime. It was also banned outright by the BBC in every independent radio station in the UK, making it the most censored record in British history. However, the ban just fed the curiosity of the British public, and although the official number one that week was Rod Stewart's double A side, I don't want to talk about it, and the first cut is the deepest, now at its fourth week in the top spot, God Save the Queen charted at number two. The song did take the top spot in the enemy's unofficial chart, which stoked rumours that the pistols were kept off the official top spot deliberately. Other evidence to support this rumour include McLaren's claim that his sources at CBS Records, the distributor of both songs, said that the pistols were outselling Stuart 2 to 1, and that the British Phonographic Institute, which oversaw the Chart Compiling Bureau, issued that sales of singles from record company operated shops like Virgin's should be excluded for one week only. According to Rotten, the song is less about an attack on the monarchy and more about the treatment of the working class by the government saying you don't write God Save the Queen because you hate the English race. You write a song like that because you love them and you're fed up with them being mistreated. The song and its impact are now thought of as the crowning achievement of the punk movement. On the 7th of June 1977, a week and a half after the release of the record and two days before the Queen's own river procession for her Silver Jubilee, McLaren and Virgin arranged for the band to sail up the Thames performing God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK in front of the Houses of Parliament. The stunt ended with the police launching boats to intercept the barge the band were playing on, forcing it to dock and arresting McLaren, Westwood and many of the band's entourage, including Jar Wobble, who assaulted a cameraman in the scuffle. Attacks on punk fans and members of the Sex Pistols themselves began to rise. Rotten was attacked twice in mid-July, the worst by a knife-wielding gang outside the Pegasus pub in Islington, where the record's producer Chris Thomas was slashed several times. In separate incidents, Cook was beaten with an iron bar and Jamie Reed was also beaten up. In July, the band embarked on a Scandinavian tour, which saw them court more controversy, with Rotten posing for photos making the Nazi salute and wearing a sweater with a swastika drawn on it. A Swedish interviewer put it to Jones that a lot of people regarded the band as McLaren's creation, to which Jones replied that he's our manager, that's all. He's got nothing to do with the music or the image. He's just a good manager. August saw the Spots tour, or Sex Pistols on tour secretly, where the band played under pseudonyms so as to avoid cancellations. It was around this time that McLaren started widening his vision for the band, employing the services of filmmaker Julian Temple to put together some short documentary films to play before the band took to the stage. These included footage from various parts of the band's existence, including the incident on the Thames.
McLaren also began arrangements to create a feature film, Who Killed Bambi, which was to be adapted from a script by American film critic Roger Ebert and directed by Russ Meyer and Jonathan Kaplan. The film was intended as a punk rock version of the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night, starring the Sex Pistols. However, filming was halted after just one day when producers from 20th Century Fox read the script and were shocked at what it contained, pulling all funding and destroying sets that had been built at Bray Studios in Berkshire. The single day of filming did, however, give us the acting debut of Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner, better known as Sting. Eventually, McLaren and Temple would go on to make The Great Rock and Roll Swindle in 1980, a mockumentary telling the fictionalised account of the rise and McLaren's manipulation of the Sex Pistols to the top of the music industry. This film featured McLaren, Jones, Cook and Vicious. Rotten refused to have anything to do with it, though he and Matlock do appear in the film in archive footage. Great train robber Ronnie Biggs, porn star Mary Millington, actresses Irene Handel and Liz Fraser and performer Edward Tudor Pole also appeared in the film. Tudor Pole sung the title song for Who Killed Bambi and was considered as a replacement for Rotten after the Sex Pistols split, but went on to form the punk band Tenpole Tudor. He also replaced Richard O'Brien as host of a UK quiz show The Crystal Maze in the 90s, as well as appearing in Cull the Conqueror and the Harry Potter films. Since the spring of 1977, Rotten, Cook and Jones had been spending time in the Wessex Sound Studios with producer Chris Thomas and engineer Bill Price to record tracks for their debut album, which was, at the time, known as God Save the Sex Pistols, but it eventually became known as Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Jones said he picked up the phrase Nevermind the Bollocks from two fans who would always say it to one another. Rotten further explained its meaning as a working-class expression to stop talking rubbish. Vicious's bass playing still wasn't good enough to waste time having him play in the recording sessions, so the rest of the band asked McLaren to convince Matlock to record bass on the album. Matlock agreed to this on the proviso he was paid in advance, and when the money didn't materialise, he refused to show up. A combination of Vicious's lack of musical talent and becoming hospitalised after suffering from hepatitis, a possible symptom of his drug use, meant that Jones was left to play both guitar and bass on Nevermind the Bollocks, with the exception of Anarchy in the UK, which featured Matlock's playing as it had already been released as a single, and Bodies, which Vicious was allowed to play on, though his part would later be overdubbed by Jones. According to Jones, he played his farty old bass part and we just let him do it. When he left, I dubbed another part on, leaving Sid's low down. I think it might be barely audible on the track. Sid wanted to come down and play on the album and we tried as hard as possible not to let him anywhere near the studio. Previous to the release of the album, two more singles were released. Pretty Vacant was released on the 1st of 1977 and saw the band perform for the first time on Top of the Pops. According to Matlock, the main riff of the song is inspired by ABBA's S.O.S.
The song gained attention for Rotten's emphasis on the second syllable of the word vacant. Despite this, the song managed to climb to number six in the UK official chart, and NME made it the magazine's single of the year in 1977. Holidays in the Sun was released on the 14th of October 1977, two weeks before the album. It was inspired by a trip to the Channel Island of Jersey, from which they were thrown out and travelled on to Berlin. Although they described the city as raining and depressing, they were relieved to get away from London. Rotten said, Being in London at the time made us feel like we were trapped in a prison camp environment. There was hatred and constant threat of violence. The best thing we could do was to set up in a prison camp somewhere else. Berlin and its decadence was a good idea. The song came about from that. I loved Berlin. I loved the wall and the insanity of the place. The communists looked in on the circus atmosphere of West Berlin, which never went to sleep, and that would be their impression of the West. The introductory chord pattern borrows heavily from the jams in the city, which had been released around six months before. Holidays in the Sun reached number eight in the UK charts and fell out of the top 40 within four weeks, possibly due to the fact that Virgin had already announced the release of Nevermind the Bollocks on November 4th, which would include this song as well as the previous three singles, something the band, McLaren and some Virgin employees disagreed with. In an attempt to stem criticism over the decision to include all four singles on the LP, Virgin indicated the possibility of an alternative album being issued simultaneously, featuring a new title and two new songs, replacing two of the former singles. A label spokesman stated, We've put the singles on the LP because most people wanted it that way, but the alternative set would enable us to overcome the multiple stores ban. A ten-song test pressing was made, though no new cuts were included, with Satellite and Submission instead being added as bonus tracks. The Sex Pistols contract with Virgin stated that its music would be distributed by Virgin in the United States, provided Branson matched any competing offers McLaren received. However, McLaren wanted to negotiate separate deals in every territory, regardless of what the contract stipulated, which angered Branson, as the clause for US distribution was an important one he had fought for. Branson knew he'd been outmaneuvered by McLaren as he could not sue to enforce the contract or else be perceived as acting like EMI or A&M. Competition for the band in the US narrowed down to Warner Brothers, Arista, Columbia and Casablanca Records, with Warner Brothers signing the band on the 10th of October for £22,000. Before Virgin could release Nevermind the Bollocks, Branson discovered that two other versions of the album were competing with his label's version. In October, a bootleg called Spunk, featuring high-quality recordings of Sex Pistols demos, was released on a label called Blank. Among the names rumoured to be behind this release were the song's producer Dave Goodman, Glenn Matlock and Malcolm McLaren, who considered Goodman's versions to be a more accurate representation of the band. Meanwhile, a French pressing of Nevermind the Bollocks on Barclay Records had added submission to its 11-song tracklist and was due for release a week before Virgin's edition. As McLaren's separate deal with Barclay meant that the French release could not be halted, 
And given that Branson was aware of how easy it was for import records to arrive in Britain, Virgin rushed production of Nevermind the Bollocks to ensure it would come out a week earlier than intended. Nevertheless, the Barclay version was already available in the UK at the time Virgin had its version ready. Because of the rush, 10,000 copies of Virgin's pressing erroneously listed 11 tracks on the sleeve, yet contained 12 on the actual record. Even with the availability of Spunk, the release of Nevermind the Bollocks Here's the Sex Pistols was eagerly awaited in the United Kingdom, with advanced orders of 125,000 copies. The album debuted at number one on the UK album charts the week after its release on the 28th of November 1977. A ban of the album enacted by major retailers resulted in the record selling well through independent vendors instead. Rolling Stone magazine announced the album as just about the most exciting rock and roll record of the 70s, applauding the band for playing with an energy and conviction that is positively transcendent in its madness and fever. However, some critics showed their disappointment with the album, calling it a greatest hits, because it included the four previously recorded singles. The album was banned by high street retailers Boots, WH Smiths and Woolworths thanks to the obscene language on the album, including six uses of the word fuck, the whole of the previously censored God Save the Queen, and for having the word bollocks in the title. The title of the album wasn't even listed in some record charts, represented instead by a blank space. Norman St John Stevis, the Conservative Shadow Secretary of State for Education and Science, labelled the album a symptom of the way society is declining. Both the Independent Television Companies Association and the Association for Independent Radio Contractors banned advertisements for the album. Nonetheless, the number of advanced sales was sufficient to make it an undeniable number one on the album chart. The album title led to a legal case that attracted considerable attention. Virgin's Notting Hill store was raided by the police for displaying the album artwork in its windows, where the staff were told they faced prosecution for indecency as stipulated by the 1899 Indecent Advertisements Act if they continued to display posters of the album cover in their windows. The displays were either toned down or removed. Chris Seal, the manager of a Virgin Records store in Nottingham, was asked by police to take down the album's promotional posters. However, after the police left, he rehung the posters. On the fourth visit by the police, he was arrested. Branson announced that he would cover the manager's legal costs and hired Queen's counsel John Mortimer as defence. The obscenity case was thrown out when Mortimer produced an expert witness who established that bollocks was an old English term for a small ball, that it appeared in place names without stirring any sensual desires in local communities, and that in the 19th century it had been used as a nickname for clergymen. Clergymen are known to talk a good deal of rubbish, and so the word later developed the meaning of nonsense. In the context of the Pistols' album title, the term does in fact primarily signify nonsense, just as Rotten had stated when explaining the meaning when the band decided on the name change. The chairman of the hearing was forced to conclude, Much as my colleagues and I wholeheartedly deplore the vulgar exploitation of the worst instincts of human nature for the purchase of commercial profits by both you and your company, we must reluctantly find you not guilty of each of the four charges. 
After playing a few dates in the Netherlands, the beginning of a planned multinational tour, the band set out on a Never Mind the Bands tour of Britain in December 1977. Of eight scheduled dates, four were cancelled due to illness or political pressure. The band played at Cromer Links Pavilion in Norfolk on Christmas Eve 1977 after assurances that the performance would finish strictly on time and no obscenities would be heard. The tickets went on sale at the local Regal Cinema, priced at £1.75. On Christmas Day, the Sex Pistols played two shows at Ivanhoe's in Huddersfield. Before a regular evening concert, the band performed a benefit matinee for the children of striking firemen, laid-off workers and one-parent families. Rotten claimed that he had to give Vicious a serious talking to before the matinee show, as Vicious wanted to be the hardcore tough rocker bloke. Rotten told him that swearing and being tough wasn't the right way to get the message across to the children at this particular gig. During the performance, Rotten stepped off stage to pose as Father Christmas for the children and was also in charge of passing out food, which ended in a Bugsy Malone-style pie fight. These shows would turn out to be the band's final UK performances until the Filthy Lucre reunion tour of 1996, where the original four band members would reunite to play together. In January 1978, the Sex Pistols embarked on a US tour, consisting mainly of dates in America's Deep South, rather than the big city venues traditionally served by British acts trying to crack America. Originally scheduled to begin a few days before New Year, the tour was delayed due to the American authorities' reluctance to issue visas to the band on account of their criminal records. Several dates had to be cancelled as a result. Though highly anticipated by fans and the media, the tour was plagued by infighting, poor planning and physically aggressive audiences. McLaren later admitted that he purposely booked redneck bars to provoke hostile situations. Over the course of the two weeks, Vicious, by now heavily addicted to heroin, began to live up to his stage name. He finally had an audience of people who would behave with shock and horror, Lydon later wrote. Sid was easily led by the nose. Early in the tour, Vicious wandered off from his Holiday Inn in Memphis, Tennessee, looking for drugs. He was later found in a hospital, with the words Gimme a Fix written on his chest with a marker pen. During a concert in San Antonio, Texas, Vicious called the crowd a bunch of cowboy faggots before striking an audience member across the head with his bass guitar. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, he received simulated oral sex on stage, later declaring that's the kind of girl I like. Suffering from heroin withdrawal during a show in Dallas, Texas, he spat blood at a woman who had climbed on stage and punched him in the face. He was admitted to hospital later that night to treat various injuries. Offstage, he's said to have kicked a female photographer, attacked a security guard, and even challenged one of his own bodyguards to a fight. After being beaten up, Vicious is reported to have told the bodyguard, I like you, now we can be friends. Rotten, meanwhile, suffering from flu and coughing up blood, felt increasingly isolated from Cook and Jones and disgusted by Vicious. On the 14th of January 1978, during the tour's final date at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco, a disillusioned Rotten introduced the band's encore, saying, You'll get one number and one number only, cos I'm a lazy bastard. That one number was a Stooges cover. This is no fun. At the end of the song, Rotten, kneeling on the stage, chanted an unambiguous declaration. No fun. This is no fun, no fun, it is no fun at all. 
No fun. As the final cymbal crash died away, Rotten addressed the audience directly, asking a rhetorical question before throwing down his microphone and walking off stage. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. He later observed, I felt cheated and I wasn't going on with it any longer. It was a ridiculous farce. Sid was completely out of his brains, just a waste of space. The whole thing was a joke at that point. Malcolm wouldn't speak to me, he would not discuss anything with me, but then he would turn around and tell Paul and Steve that the tension was all my fault because I wouldn't agree to anything. On the 17th of January, the band split up making their separate ways to Los Angeles. McLaren, Cook and Jones prepared to fly to Rio de Janeiro to work on the soundtrack to the great rock and roll swindle. Vicious, in increasingly bad shape, was taken by a friend to New York, where he was immediately hospitalised. Rotten later described his own situation. The Sex Pistols left me, stranded in Los Angeles with no ticket, no hotel room, and a message to Warner Brothers saying that if anyone phones up claiming to be Johnny Rotten, then they were lying. Rotten flew to New York where he announced the band's breakup in a newspaper interview on the 18th of January. Almost broke, he telephoned Richard Branson, who agreed to pay for his flight back to London via Jamaica, where they met with members of the band Devo. Branson tried to install Rotten as their lead singer, but they declined the offer. Cook, Jones and Vicious never performed together again after Rotten's departure. Over the next several months, McLaren arranged recordings for the film's soundtrack in Brazil with Jones and Cook, Paris with Vicious and London. Each of the three, as well as other guests, stepped in as lead vocalists on tracks that in some cases were far from what the Sex Pistols were expected to sound like. On the 30th of June, a single credited to the Sex Pistols was released. On one side, the great train robber Ronnie Biggs sang No One Is Innocent, accompanied by Cook and Jones. On the other, Vicious sang the Frank Sinatra classic My Way over a Jones Cook backing track with a string orchestra. The single reached number seven on the charts and eventually outsold all the singles with which Rotten was involved. McLaren was seeking to reconstitute the band with a permanent new frontman, but Vicious, McLaren's first choice, had sickened them in. In return for agreeing to record My Way, Vicious had demanded that McLaren sign a sheet of paper declaring that he was no longer Vicious's manager. In August, Vicious, back in London, delivered his final performances as a nominal Sex Pistol, recording and filming cover versions of Eddie Cochran's Something Else, Come On Everybody and Sinatra's My Way. The bassist's return to New York in September put an end to McLaren's reunion dream. With Spongen now acting as his manager, Vicious took up residence in room 100 of the Hotel Chelsea in New York, where the couple signed in under the names Mr and Mrs John Simon Ritchie. Vicious embarked on a solo career during which he performed with the Idols, 
featuring musicians including Mick Jones of The Clash, Glenn Matlock, Rat Scabies of The Damned, and the New York Dolls Arthur Kane, Jerry Nolan and Johnny Thunders. He performed the majority of his shows at a club called Maxis Kansas City, where he drew large crowds and is reported to have made good money. Some performances were hellish, especially when Vicious insulted some of the audience. Examples of this can be heard on the in-between tracks on his live album Sid Sings. These gigs would turn out to be his final performances. Over the last few months, Vicious and Spongen had spiralled into deeper drug abuse, punctuated by domestic violence. Their relationship ended brutally on October 12, 1978, when Vicious claimed to have awoken from a drugged stupor to find Spongen dead, wearing only her underwear beneath the sink on the bathroom floor of their suite. She had suffered a single stab wound to her abdomen and appeared to have bled to death. The knife used in the stabbing had been brought by Vicious and was identical to a flip knife given to Stiv Baters, the vocalist of punk rock band The Dead Boys, by Dee Dee Ramone. According to Ramone's wife at the time, Vera King Ramone, Vicious had brought the five-inch hunting knife after seeing Stiv's. Police also found drug paraphernalia at the scene and Vicious was arrested and charged with Spungen's murder. In police custody, he said they had fought that night, but gave conflicting versions of what happened next, saying, I stabbed her, but I never meant to kill her, then saying that he did not remember, and at one point during the argument, Spungen had fallen onto the knife. In an interview at the time, McLaren said, I can't believe he was involved in such a thing. Sid was set to marry Nancy in New York. He was very close to her and had quite the passionate affair with her. Apart from Vicious, East Village resident of the punk and porno scene, heroin dealer and sometime actor and comedian Rockets Redglare, real name Michael Mora, has been suspected by some as having a hand in Spungen's murder, as he had visited the suite that night to provide the couple with 40 capsules of a morphine-based heroin substitute. On the 22nd of October, 10 days after Spungen's death, Vicious attempted suicide by slitting his wrist with a smashed light bulb. He was taken to Bellevue Hospital, where he again tried to kill himself by jumping from a window, shouting, I want to be with my Nancy, but was pulled back in by hospital staff. And what do you think made it happen? It was meant to happen. Nancy always said she'd die before she was 21. <coughs> What would you like to happen now over the next, say, year or two? I'd like to have fun. What sort of fun? Any kind of fun, just fun. That's my object in life. Are you having fun at the moment? Are you kidding? Oh, I'm not having fun at all. Where would you like to be? Under the ground. Are you serious? Vicious was charged with assault while on bail after smashing a beer mug in Patti Smith's brother Todd's face at a Scarfish concert at New York dance club Hurrah. 
Vicious was arrested for this on the 9th of December 1978 and sent to Rikers Island Metro Jail for 55 days, where he underwent a painful and enforced cold turkey detoxification. He was released on bail on the 1st of February 1979. Bail was originally set at $50,000, but lowered after court hearings and negotiations from his lawyer. McLaren worked to raise money and the bond was eventually covered by Virgin Records. Leiden has stated that Mick Jagger stepped in and paid for Vicious's lawyer and has praised Jagger for never seeking any publicity for this. That evening, a small group of friends, which included Jerry Only of the Misfits and future D-Generation founder Howie Pyro, gathered to celebrate Vicious having made bail at a friend's Manhattan apartment at 63 Bank Street, New York City. He spent hours during the party looking to the future, planning an album he would later record to get his life and career back on track should he get off the hook. Vicious was clean after the detox methadone program at Rikers Island, but sometime during the gathering, Vicious had his friend, photographer Peter Kodik, deliver him some heroin. Vicious overdosed at midnight, and everyone present worked together to get him up and walking around to revive him. Despite their best efforts, Vicious died in the night and was discovered by his mother early the next morning. No New York funeral homes were willing to hold a funeral or burial for Vicious due to his reputation. However, his remains were eventually cremated at Garden State Crematory in New Jersey. Vicious had said while he was alive that he wanted to be buried with Nancy. Spungen, who was Jewish, is buried in a Jewish cemetery in Pennsylvania. So Vicious's mother travelled to Spungen's family home and asked her mother, Deborah, if she could scatter Vicious's ashes over Nancy's grave. Deborah denied the request. But in an act of defiance, Jerry only drove Beverly, her sister, and two of Vicious's friends to the cemetery, and Beverly scattered her son's ashes over Nancy's grave. Howie Pyro, who was one of the two friends in attendance, said later that he felt Spungen killed herself and that Vicious had been innocent. He thought Spungen was desperate for attention and stabbed herself, thinking Sid would come to her rescue, but that he was too stoned to do so. However, Vicious's mother claims that after he had been cremated, she found a handwritten note in the pocket of his leather jacket that read, We had a death pact, and I had to keep my half of the bargain. Please bury me next to my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket, jeans and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. Sid Sings, Vicious's live solo record, was released posthumously in 1979 and reached number 30 in the UK album charts. It featured the three cover versions recorded after the breakup of the Sex Pistols, as well as other covers recorded live at his Max's Kansas City gigs. It also included a live version of Belson Was a Gas, the only Sex Pistols song written and performed by Vicious. Reflecting on Vicious's death, Lydon said, Poor Sid. The only way he could live up to what he wanted everyone to believe about him was to die. That was tragic, but more for Sid than anyone else. He really bought his public image. On the 7th of February 1979, just five days after Vicious's death, hearings began in London on the lawsuit Leiden had initiated against McLaren and his management company Glitterbest, after being stranded in Los Angeles. 
Among the claims were non-payment of royalties, improper usage of the title Johnny Rotten, unfair contractual obligations and damages for all the criminal activities that took place. Cook and Jones initially allied with McLaren, but as the evidence mounted that their manager had poured virtually all of the band's revenue into the great rock and roll swindle, they switched sides. Two weeks later, the court put the film and its soundtrack into receivership, no longer under McLaren's control. The deal gave control of the Sex Pistols' assets back to the band themselves, including Lydon's stage name of Johnny Rotten. McLaren, with substantial personal debts and legal fees, took off for Paris to sign a record deal for an LP of standards, including Edith Piaf's Non Je Ne Regrette Rien. It was also around this time that his relationship with Westwood ended. Many years later, Westwood said she never really wanted to be involved with McLaren romantically, and that the feeling that she'd led him on and the fact they worked so well together were the reasons that she stayed with him for as long as she did. She said she had looked after him for a while as he recovered from a fever and had nowhere else to stay, but then McLaren never left. She also said he craved success but was eaten up with insecurities and was incredibly possessive and jealous of her, undermining her confidence by continually calling her just a seamstress and claiming that she'd never have amounted to anything without him. Westwood, who had been married briefly before meeting McLaren, eventually got remarried in 1992 to Andreas Kronthaler, a former fashion student of hers 25 years her junior. McLaren went on to manage Adam and the Ants and Bow Wow Wow, an advised group such as the Slits. He approached the Red Hot Chili Peppers in 1985 early in their career, expressing an interest in managing them. After hearing a short live set, McLaren was clearly unimpressed, according to frontman Anthony Kiedis. He proposed to reinvent the group by having them dress in neon clothing and play stripped-down basic rock and roll with all of the emphasis on Kiedis. Although Kiedis was flattered to be considered, he and the band rejected the offer. Kiedis recalled the event, saying, It was like the Wizard of Oz had spoken and what he had said was too ludicrous to take seriously. In the mid-1980s, McLaren released a number of albums as a solo artist, including Duck Rock, which included the UK's first ever hip-hop chart single, Buffalo Gals. He also dipped his toes into electronic music, funk and opera, as well as a number of film and television projects. In 2009, he was diagnosed with abdominal cancer, which eventually took his life on the 8th of April 2010. His funeral was attended by Westwood, Cook and Matlock, along with celebrities such as Bob Geldof, Tracy Emin and Adam Ant. As Vicious's version of My Way played, McLaren was lowered into the ground at Highgate Cemetery in a coffin, spray-painted with the slogan, Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, the name of the original clothing shop he set up with Westwood that became the epicentre of punk. In 2012, probate was granted to Young Kim, his girlfriend since 2002, by McLaren's will, which excluded his and Westwood's son, Joe Corey, from any inheritance. In April of 2013, a headstone was placed on McLaren's grave featuring the slogan, Better a spectacular failure than a benign success, a misquote of McLaren's claim that the best advice he received came from an art school teacher. The original quote was actually, It is better to be a flamboyant failure than any kind of benign success. About his contribution to music, McLaren has said about himself, I've been called many things, a charlatan, a con man, or, most flatteringly, the culprit responsible for turning British popular culture into nothing more than a cheap marketing gimmick. 
After he left the Sex Pistols, Glenn Matlock went on to form Rich Kids, a new wave power pop band with himself as bass guitarist and singer, Midjour, later founder of Visage and most famous for being an Ultravox, as well as co-writing Band-Aids Do They Know It's Christmas and having a successful solo career on guitar, vocals and keyboards, Steve New on guitar and vocals and Rusty Egan on drums. The band signed to Sex Pistols' arch-enemies EMI Records in early 1977. Rich Kids had a self-titled Top 25 hit the following year, and also released the album Ghosts of Princes in Towers in August 1978. After the Rich Kids, he formed The Spectres with Tom Robinson band guitarist Danny Kustow, and then Hot Club in 1982 with guitarist James Stevenson and singer Steve Allen. He also played bass in Vicious White Kids, a one-off Sid Vicious Live project, on Iggy Pop's album Soldier, and The Dam's Not of This Earth. He's since played live with the original Sex Pistols lineup at reunion gigs, The Faces and Primal Scream, as well as releasing a solo album in 1995 called Who's He Think He Is When He's At Home. Cook and Jones formed The Professionals in 1978, releasing four singles and a self-titled LP that didn't see the light of day until 1990. The band's follow-up, I Didn't See It Coming, was released first in 1981. An American tour in 81 was cut short due to Cook and two other members, Paul Myers and Ray McVeigh, being injured in a car accident. Although the band returned to the States the following year, Jones and Myers' drug problems hampered the band's prospects and they broke up not long after. The pair also discovered the girl group Bananarama, and Cook helped them record their debut single, I Am Wana, and produced their 1982 debut album, Deep Sea Skiving. Over the next 30 years, he went on to play with the Chiefs of Relief, Man Rays, Subway Sect and Edwin Collins, and joined the Sex Pistols on various occasions. Cook lives in Hammersmith with his wife, Jenny, a former member of Culture Club, and their daughter, Holly, a solo musician in her own right. He and Jones also play football in the over-40s or Dad's Army squad of Hollywood United, an amateur soccer team based in Los Angeles. Jones was also a member of Checkered Past and played or recorded with a number of acts including Johnny Thunders, Susie and the Banshees, Thin Lizzy, Billy Idol, Joan Jett, Adam Ant, Bob Dylan, Iggy Pop, Megadeth, Lisa Marie Presley and the Neurotic Outsiders, a supergroup featuring Duff McKagan and Matt Sorum of Guns N' Roses and Duran Duran's John Taylor. As well as recording two solo albums, Mercy and Fire and Gasoline, he also produced albums for Insane Clown Posse, that he also recorded guitar parts for, Buck Cherry, and American Pearl. Jones now lives in LA, where he became a radio DJ on a number of radio stations, including K-Rock and BBC Radio 6 Music. After leaving the Pistols, Johnny Rotten reverted to his birth name of Lydon and formed Public Image Limited, or PIL, with former Clash and Flowers of Romance member Kevin Levine and old friend Jar Wobble. The band lasted for 14 years, with Lydon the only constant member, during which time it scored a UK top 10 hit with the debut single Public Image in 1978. The band featured a bass-heavy dub sound with progressive rock influences. Hill reformed in 2009 and continues to record and tour to this day.
Through the 80s and 90s, Leiden also participated in other projects such as Time Zone with Africa Bambata and Bill Laswell, and recorded two solo albums, the first of which, Psycho's Path, was the only one to actually be released and features Left Field's remix of Open Up, which became a hit in the US and the UK. In 2004, Leiden appeared on the reality TV show I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which takes place in the Australian jungle and involves the contestants performing forfeits with live bugs and animals. Those stars don't come out tonight. I'm walking. <laughs> Who does that remind you of, Jordan? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you. <laughs> The woman's f***ing talentless. The piss off doesn't do anything. I mean, it does. It nags all the way through it. Come on. You kick her ass out of here. It ain't funny anymore. It don't contribute. It's a parasite. Oh, I say, soldier. You won't push much more of that on me. I won't take that. But I won't. You... you make a change with that attitude or... I'll do something serious. But I care about someone sitting here with that attitude of feed me, entertain me, and do everything for me. It don't know how to cook, walk, or talk. It's a moron. It's a bicycle pump. It's slightly galling, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Other people, you know, are getting really fed up with it. And they're letting me know that. So I'm, I'm kind of like a spokesperson, I suppose, because I am outspoken, you know. It occupies the centre of attention bed, but it isn't happy even with that. The smoke annoys her. It's the campfire, bitch, right? Live with it or swap. I'm not here to support a page-free blow-up balloon, right? I fucking ain't. No more bollocks to you. Right. I've had enough of this shit. Everything's all right in this camp, but with one past ego, which I ain't putting up with any longer. It's got to stop. Something will walk. It's me, I set fire to the pot of it. I've had enough. During the live broadcast, he called the audience fucking cunts, which led to ITV, the broadcaster of the programme, to receive 91 complaints. He also claimed that he and his wife Nora Forster, a publishing agent from Germany, should have been on Pan Am Flight 103 that crashed over Lockerbie, Scotland on the 21st of December 1998, but they missed the flight because Nora took so long to pack. In 2008, he appeared in a Country Life Butter advert on British TV, a move he defended by claiming he did it to raise money for the reformation of Pill. Do I buy Country Life Butter because it's British? Do I buy Country Life because I yearn for the British countryside? Or because it's made only from British milk? I buy country life because I think it tastes the best. It's not about Great Britain, it's about Great Butter.
The advertising campaign proved incredibly successful, with sales of the brand's butter rising by 81% in the following quarter, and sure enough, Pill reformed, funded by Leiden, who also set up his own UK publishing company, Pill Twin Limited. He and Nora have been married since the 1980s and live in LA and London. Leiden was stepfather to Forster's daughter, Ari Up, and the couple have been legal guardians of Up's three children since 2000 as she couldn't cope with parenthood. Up was the lead singer of The Slits until her death from breast cancer in 2010. Thank you all for coming to our little fucking party! 1996 saw the original band return to play live again on the Filthy Lucre World Tour, during which they played almost as many gigs as they ever did in the 70s, to audiences in Europe, North and South America, New Zealand, Australia and Japan, all eager to see a band that thousands had claimed to have seen, but in truth, never had. The tour wasn't without its controversy either. They found themselves banned from playing Northern Ireland on grounds of blasphemous content. After the McLaren influence narrative given in the great rock and roll swindle, Julian Temple and the Sex Pistols filmed a documentary from the band's point of view. 2000's The Filth and the Fury portrays McLaren as a gimp and only shows the band members in silhouette. The band reunited a few more times during the early 2000s, including a show on the Queen's Golden Jubilee. In 2006, the Sex Pistols were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. However, the band refused to acknowledge the induction, complaining they had been asked for large sums of money to attend. The song Pretty Vacant was used during the opening ceremony of the 2012 London Olympics, directed by filmmaker Danny Boyle which celebrated British life and Britain's influence on popular culture. Amidst the chaos that was the Sex Pistols, it's often overlooked just what a great band they are and what great records they made. Jones and Matlock crafted a new take on rock and roll that was based on simple retro guitar riffs that took a leaf from the garage rock scene of the 1960s, that you don't need to overcomplicate things to make great rock and roll. They were an antidote to how complex rock music had become since the end of the 60s and the introduction of prog rock. Without them, popular culture in the last 40 years would be very, very different. The Pistols didn't just kick down doors, they kicked them off the wall. For a band who really only released one album and four singles, they've spawned a sea of imitators and still do to this day. Not bad for a band that supposedly couldn't play. The fashion style and attitude of Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious have obviously inspired many musicians over time, but probably the strangest influence was on the character design and portrayal of the Joker, the villain in The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's 2008 sequel to Batman Begins. Nolan claims that Vicious's sense of anarchy and a commitment to chaos inspired the character of the Joker, something that Christian Bale has confirmed saying that his co-star Heath Ledger watched tapes of Vicious to inspire his performance. Despite claims from New York, the Sex Pistols are the true originators of punk. No one else had their attitude, balls or honesty. The Pistols were inspired by anger and poverty, rather than art and poetry. There never was a punk movement. There was the Sex Pistols, and then there was the rest. The Sex Pistols are punk. The rest are just punk rock big difference.
thank you for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time.